Well, good morning. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, uh, pastors and elders and, and church, for giving me this opportunity again. Uh, my name's Brian, if you haven't met me, so hi. Um, and I guess if kids are scattering, scatter if they haven't already. Um, I, I, in the last couple of months when we've, you know, done prayer ministry where people have come up and, and, and prayed, um, I've noticed something. There's been several people, um, you might even say at least half the people come up, kind of expressed the same sort of condition. It's not just to me, but to other people as well. This condition of feeling idle or feeling stuck or they feel like they're in neutral, you know, or, or their spirit is dry, they feel stagnant. You might even say a little apathetic, um, empty, worn out, broken down, fed up, wrung out, run down, beat up, knocked down, kicked around, just, just spinning their wheels. It's just a lot of different ways of saying, I think, the same thing. And that is, for some reason, at this moment, I feel distant from God. It's not that God has done anything or I've done anything. I just feel apart. Have you ever felt that way, by the way? Anybody? If you haven't, give it time. I think it's just part of human condition and walking with Jesus that we go through these times and so you feel like you're in a wilderness that you're in the desert that you're in a holding pattern where is God and and where is he taking me and I just feel disconnected at the moment well I've heard a lot of that and it was on my heart to just kind of try to offer some comfort um, something that's gonna seem I think very simple something that we all probably know. But if this is the condition that a lot of us are either in or going through, we kind of want to know what's, what's causing this. Why are we the feeling what we are? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at um, actually a portion of Scripture that's one of my favorites. It's in the book of Luke, chapter 9, and we're going to read... Uh, verses 57 through 62, the very end of the chapter. Are we up there yet? We're not up there at all. You have to trust me on this then. So, Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, starting at verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Let me pray for us. Father, would you bless your scripture to our hearts? Would you, Lord, speak to us, open our hearts and our minds to what the Spirit would say? Have your way here, Jesus. Meet with us and be our teacher. 
In Jesus' name, amen. So a lot can happen when you're, when you're out walking. And in this case, that's what's going on. Jesus and his disciples and perhaps a whole bunch of others are just out walking. And while you're walking, they're receiving instruction. There's, there's wisdom and knowledge and experience all comes on the journey, usually not before it. Now, in the business world, in manufacturing at least, we call this OJT, on-the-job training. The very best way to learn how to run a piece of equipment is to get out there and run a piece of equipment. And in fact, when, when we started a new factory many, many years ago, we had classes where we taught people how this equipment was supposed to run, and nobody knew a thing until they got out there and actually tried to run it. So learning happens, at least for me and for a great many people, learning happens in the doing as we get at it at, at work and life and certainly in discipleship. The life of a disciple, this missional living is, is demanding. You know, Jesus is not calling us to sit around for tea and crumpets. He's, he's not calling us to a picnic, you know, sipping mint and juleps under the magnolia trees. It's a life of sacrifice. It is a life of discipline. And Jesus tells this first uh, disciple just that. If you, if you look at these first two verses, Jesus doesn't call this first guy, right? The first guy just says, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. Now, that word follow doesn't mean just tag along. It doesn't mean, hey, I want to, you know, see where you're going and maybe hang out a little bit. That word carries a depth. It means discipleship. It means that I will come with you. I will trust you. I will obey you. I will sit underneath your teaching and learn from you. I want to be your apprentice. I want to be your disciple. And Jesus replies to him pretty succinctly, concisely, maybe a bit terse. In fact, it seems to me just a little insensitive, like rude almost. Jesus says, hey, buddy, even the critters have a place to call home, but I don't. In fact, Jesus himself is reliant on other people and their hospitality, and oftentimes when he's seeking hospitality, he doesn't get it. If you look back up in just, just a few verses earlier in verse 52 and 53, he says that he sent messengers ahead of him into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading towards Jerusalem. So, A, he didn't have a place there to stay. And B, they didn't even want him there. And that's what Jesus was telling this guy. Hey, bud, there may be a time when you're not welcome and you're definitely not going to have a place to sleep. We expect in our lives, especially here in the U.S., we expect that security. We expect the comfort of family and home and familiar surroundings. But Jesus warns us that we can't let the cares of this life, we can't let the comfort of our possessions imperil our growth in discipleship. Again, same chapter, few verses earlier, 23, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus is saying this desire for home, for food, clothing, for family, it's good, 
but it's secondary. It's secondary to Jesus. He has to be first. He's not turning this guy away, but he is confronting him with the reality that dedication to the kingdom of God, dedication to missional living might mean hardships. It might mean tough choices. It might mean not knowing where you're going and not knowing when you're going to get there. So what was this guy's response? Well, we don't know. It doesn't say. But what would our response be? What if Jesus said, follow me? There might not be air conditioning. There might not be internet. Worse, there might not be coffee. Would we say, okay, that's okay. I don't need those things, Jesus. I need you. Identifying with Jesus might place us outside of the boundaries of what is acceptable in this world that is not oriented toward pleasing and serving God. Living for Jesus might mean rejection. It might mean ridicule. It might mean hardship. And are we ready for that? Are we ready to say, yeah, Jesus, I'll do that? This, Jesus is not saying, hey, come to me. I'll make your eyes shiny and your teeth bright. Now, he does say in Scripture that come to me and I will give you rest. But he also says to me, come and sacrifice. Come and give up your life. And that's what he's saying to this guy here. You come to me, you might have to give up your life. Now he goes on. If you look down to verse 9, another man does come up and Jesus calls to him. Jesus says, come follow me. And the man says, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus again says something that seems kind of rude, kind of harsh. The guy's dad just died. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. You go proclaim the gospel. I don't know if the is actually in scripture. That's me. Now, we, we have to understand, and I just want to spend a few minutes on what burial practices in ancient Israel were like. Okay, if someone died, they were immediately prepared for burial. Whenever that was, because there's, remember, there's no refrigeration, right? There's no embalming. So when someone passed away, they immediately prepared the body, clean, wrapped with spices, put the body in the family tomb, and then immediately go back to the house where they spend seven days of mourning. And in that time, they don't leave the house. Often, they don't, the men don't shave. They may not bathe. They don't do anything but mourn their loss. Friends come by. They mourn with you. They might bring you food. But for seven days, you just sit and mourn. And then after the seven days, life pretty much goes back to usual. There are some customs that you don't partake of for the next 30 days and then for the next year. And then that year later, the family gathers again and they have what's called second burial. So they go back to the family tomb, and by this time the body's decomposed, and they gather the bones, put the bones in the box, and tuck, tuck the box away somewhere in the family tomb. So inside the family tomb, there's a place for a body, and then there's all these boxes around with the bones of the dead relatives. So what's going on here then? A couple different ways to read this. If his father had just died, then it's not likely he would have been out following Jesus. If his father had just died, it's likely he would have been at home preparing the body or during the seven days of mourning. But we don't know, so we can say maybe. That's 
that happened and he's here with Jesus. Or maybe, maybe his dad's just not dead yet. Maybe his dad's just really, really sick and he's awaiting his death. So he's saying, Jesus, let me, let me take some time here and wait for my dad to pass and do all these things. So that's possible. Or maybe, maybe his dad had passed and he'd gone through the seven days of mourning and what he's really asking Jesus is, in a year from now, after second burial, I will come and follow you. So none of that really, in all honesty, it doesn't really matter a whole lot how we read that because the problem here is in one little word. Right, Cinda? The problem here is in the word first. The problem here is he says, first, let me go do this. Then I'll get to you, Jesus. Have you ever heard the phrase, I don't know where I heard this before, delayed obedience is disobedience. There is no but first when it comes to Jesus. Jesus is on first. And we have to realize that whatever he calls us to do, wherever he leads us, it might lead to some very uncomfortable things with your family. That might happen. Jesus realizes that this person's priorities might be a little bit out of whack, so he shocks him with this response, let the dead bury the dead. Now, same thing, how do we take that? Well, we can really take it two ways. Is Jesus saying, metaphorically, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead? Or, because of this burial procedure that the ancient Israelis went through with the year, year later when they go back and rebury the bones, is Jesus basically saying, let those who are already dead in the family tomb rebury their own dead? Again, I don't think it matters much how we read it. Jesus is basically asserting the priority of discipleship and the priority of the kingdom of God. That's what comes first. We have to find a way to integrate life into Jesus. Jesus is first. This happens again in, in, in 61. Another person says, I will follow you, Lord, but first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Now look, really, Jesus? We can't say goodbye? We have to like right now stop what we're doing, drop everything and go? Again, lots of speculation on why Jesus is saying what he's saying. Perhaps Jesus is trying to warn them that your parents might talk you out of doing something really stupid, making a big mistake. Remember, you know, this Jesus character was not the norm for Jewish rabbis. And people were not happy with what he was doing and the way he was leading his disciples. And, and it may be a good Jewish family is going to try to tell their son or daughter or brother or sister, hey, you don't want to do this. You're making a mistake. Missionaries in, in India talk about this with Hindu families. If, if someone becomes a Christian, they will throw a party. But it's really not a party. They try to get the family together for an intervention to stop this person from leaving their Hindu faith because to leave the Hindu faith is to leave your family entirely. And they want to stop it. So they kind of throw a party to act as an intervention to get them to not do this thing. So this is possibly not just about settling up your affairs, but it's about avoid being pulled away. 
it kind of reminds me of, you know, when the teen daughter comes home and says, hey, mom and dad, I want you to meet my, meet my biker boyfriend, Snake. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna get matching tattoos and we're gonna run off and live in his trailer on a commune in Arkansas. And mom and dad, you know, eyes wide go, let's, let's have dinner first. So they invite, you know, little Sally and Snake over to the house. And when they get there, mom locks Sally in the bedroom and dad smacks Snake upside the head with a baseball bat, drags him over to the bus station, puts him on the bus with a one-way ticket to Saskatchewan. And they intervene because it's a really bad idea. Family just might not understand the call. They might not understand what's going on in your life. When you say, I'm dropping everything for Jesus, they might not get it. And to go off and follow your dream might leave a family member destitute. At very worst, it might, at very least, it might leave them just confused, not understanding what's going on. But Jesus has to come first. Can you trust Jesus to put things in order? Can you trust Jesus to deal with all of these issues with family or friends or, or life? Can we deal with being judged by family or by others for doing something that they deem as foolish? Can you just give your family up to Jesus and say, I will follow? Say yes. Faithfulness can look like foolishness to those who don't know. We, we're good with excuses, right? We, we make excuses for everything all the time. Why do we feel like we have to do stuff first anyway? Don't we trust that Jesus will get our life in order? Don't we trust that Jesus will take care of things? We tend to separate Jesus out from everyday life. You know, it's like, Jesus, I want to follow you as soon as I finish school or as soon as I get a job or as soon as, soon as I find that wife who will support me or as soon as I pay off my bills or as soon as, but first, but first, but first. We make these excuses and we separate Jesus out of all of this stuff that we think we have to do. But instead, all of that stuff needs to be integrated into following Jesus because life still happens right but it has to happen in Jesus how do we do these things as we follow Jesus how do we live with proper perspective proper priorities and we have to do that because hard times come because we get to places where we feel stuck or we feel dry, we feel detached from God, or maybe we do experience outright persecution. And sometimes the cause for this feeling is simply this. And this is one of those simple things, simple truths that Christian living, the discipline of living on mission with God can be hard. It can be painful. And sometimes that might just cause us to feel distant. But there's purpose even behind these hard, painful times. And I know you might say, really? There's purpose behind this? Let me show you something. You guys know Paul, right? Good old Apostle Paul. Very famous, wrote most of the New Testament. This is what he has to say. In Romans 5, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. 
and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Listen to this, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Why would we do that? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. Okay, that's nice, but it's only one scripture, right? Is there anywhere else? Well, what about Jesus' brother? Good old James. What does James have to say? Well, James says something like this. In James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Two's good. Paul, greatest apostle, James, brother of Christ. Anything else? How about good old Peter? Good old Peter, just like us. Good old Peter who loves to put his foot in his mouth. Good old Peter who, you know, shoots and then aims. What about that Peter, the guy just like us a lot of times? He says this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. There's purpose behind the stuff we go through. Now, more often than not, in our day and age here in America, it is not outright persecution. Perhaps these suffering and trials and tribulations and tests are just those periods of our life where we are dry, where we are weary, where we feel stuck and we don't know the direction we should go and we're confused. But they are telling us that it is too soon to quit. There's purpose in all of this. Hold on. He's saying, hold on. Press in. Lean into Jesus. When you have this wilderness season, hold on. Keep going. Focus on your God. He is up to something good here. And we may not see it. We may not feel it. We may not know what it is. And we may think he is downright mean and nasty to do what he's doing. But hold on. He's got something for us. We work really, really hard at getting out of a situation when we should be working on how we can best get through that situation. And there's a simple cure here. I've already said it. It's hold on. Look at the last verse, verse 62. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. It's that simple. Stay focused. Keep on. I have never plowed with a horse and plow before. But growing up, my dad is a picture up there. So my dad would have a tractor hooked up to a plow just like that. 
And my uncle would hold the plow behind it, and that's how we would plow, because we didn't have, you know, a regular plow hooked up to a tractor. But with these guys, so he would hold that plow, reins around his neck, eyes focused on a point ahead so that the furrow is straight. And he has to pay attention to that. If he had to turn to see what's going on behind him, maybe he pulls the reins and the mule veers off to the side. Or if he's paying attention to something else and the mule catches a glimpse of a butterfly and old Bessie lights off across the field and there you go. Or the point of the plow hits some hard dirt and starts working its way up out. This is work. You've got to focus on what you're doing to plow straight, to plow deep. Driving a straight furrow, a deep furrow, means that we have to stay focused. And it's work. If we're weary, if we're feeling distant or dry or stuck, keep your eyes fixed ahead. Focus on Jesus. Press into him. Now look, after you plow, how long is it before you actually get something out of it? Anybody plant a garden? Am I the only one that does a garden in here? What is wrong with you people? Okay, we got one. Thank you, Mark. Okay, so after you till up the ground, plow the ground, how long before you actually get something out of it? It's going to be a couple of months at least. In my case this year, I planted and it rained so hard, my garden literally washed down the hill and we had to do it all over again. Several months go on, and we can't focus on the harvest or focus even on the planting. Do the hard work that's before you right now. Keep it this task at hand. If that task is waiting, okay, wait. If it's serving, then serve. If it's quietly praying for someone, then quietly pray for them. If it's enduring suffering or pain or dryness or distance, then endure it. This is your time to plow. This is your time to play in the dirt. Get into what God has for you right here, right now. And you might say, oh, but I feel like God has something for me. I just don't know how to get there. And the truth is, he probably does have something for you. And the way to get there is to do what you're doing now. Take care of the business at hand, and he will lead you on in his time, when he's ready, when he's got you ready. Remember the children of Israel? 40 years to prepare people who were slaves, who were really good at making bricks, to make them into an army. It could have gotten, I'm sure it got really, really old, really, really tired of living in a desert. But God was making something out of them. Sometimes that path from where we are to where God needs us to be runs through a desert. It runs through hard ground, and there is no Star Trek transporter beam that can instantaneously get us from here to there. There's no going around it. God will get you out of it. God will not get you out of it. He'll get you through it. And when we return wistfully to our past, it can decrease or sabotage what God is doing in our lives now. Maybe that past was great. Maybe we have wonderful memories and God did great things through us in the past. And now it's dry. Now it's nothing. And we want to go, but that, let me go back there. But God's got something ahead of us. Now, I talked about planting a garden. My favorite vegetable is baby lima beans. 
most loved. I even saw people go, oh, God, you, seriously, they are. It's my favorite vegetable, but man, they are work. You got to prepare the ground and plant them and then picking them, you got to dig through these vines and you pick them and then you shell and you shell and you shell. And when you're all done, you worked all day, your back hurts, you're dirty, your thumbs are sore from shelling and you've been all day doing it and you got like a handful of beans like this. And you know, it just, so I don't do it. I don't plan it. It's just not worth it. And maybe you feel like your calling is just like that. It's hard work and there seems to be so little reward. But you can't quit. Now, some folks won't blame you. They won't blame you at all. They'll say, you know what? You're not getting anywhere. You need to go try something different. But if you're on God's path, don't. God is leading you somewhere. Stay there. Stay with it. Follow Jesus, trust Jesus, even in this. This is a discipline. It's a holy habit of walking with Jesus, learning from him in the in-between moments of rewarding ministry and service. You know what happens from lima bean harvest to lima bean harvest? There's a period of rest, right? You rest and you plan And then you start preparing and plowing and planting and praying for rain all over again. So much goes into it. And you might feel like none of that matters. Like you're spinning your wheels for very little results. But there's far more time lived in these in-between moments than in the spotlight. And then the ministry moments. It's so easy to get distracted in those in-between moments. From... Glory to glory, the Bible might say, or from really being productive and really being productive again. There's a lot of space in between those times. Down the road from me growing up lived a retired evangelist. Very dear lady, had nothing to her name. She lived in a house that was loaned to her on a piece of property that was not hers. Um, in fact, it was my uncle's property. We put a, put a trailer there, and that's where she lived. And I would go talk to her often. And she would tell me about how she would preach and give of herself and and preach against distractions. And she would preach against TV back in the day. TV was just, she called it the one-eyed monster. And she was prophetic, I believe. But then a tear would be in her eye. And she would point a crooked arthritic finger across the room and say, and yet there one sits. And we have our pocket full of distractions, don't we? Instant distractions in our pocket. The ministry of the kingdom can't afford us to be distracted like that. We have something that God is calling us to do. And it might presume a redefinition of what family is. It might presume a redefinition of what obligation means or what home means because this is centered on hearing and doing the word of God. Jesus even said a chapter earlier, my mothers and my brothers are those who hear and do the word of God, not my physical family. Later on in chapter 14, he says, we should hate father, mother, sister, brother, even your own life. Everything else we hold loosely, we hold on to him and him only, him first. Jesus, God calls us to engage in behavior sometimes that might seem deviant. 
definitely outside the norm. Now, ordinary security, ordinary customs, home and family, Jesus doesn't have a problem with that. He approves of those things. That's the way God created it, right? So he's perfectly good with with you taking care of your family and you doing the things you need to do. But the crucial question he's asking here concerns what happens at the parting of ways. Suppose Jesus said, I want to lead you towards work where your income will be lower, where your prospects will be uncertain, where your accustomed standard of living is going to be non-existent. Or suppose I were to ask you to do something which according to most people just is not done. Or suppose I were to summon you to serve in such a way that your nearest and dearest would be left out with no explanation. Would we go? Regularly, I think God tests our hearts by bringing us to that fork in the road. And when it becomes necessary to choose between two ways, what do we choose? Comfort, Christ. See, the whole whole point of this from the outset is follow. Follow me first. Stay the course. Chip away. Dig in the field where you are right now. Keep running. And why? There's one more scripture I want to look at. If we go on to chapter 10, and I don't believe it's up there. I'm just going to read it to you. Chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field. Go. I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. Go. And go and pray for others to go as well, he says. Jesus has a mission for each of us. And there's going to be some work. There's going to be some plowing, some digging, some playing in the dirt. There is the potential for some danger and for some confusion on the part of those around us. There has to be single-minded focus. But this is good news, and it needs to be shared, and we have a part in that mission. Ask yourself, what is my message to tell? What is the battle I need to be fighting right now? What is the prayer I need to be praying right now? Who is the person I should be serving right now? What is the mission I'm supposed to be pursuing right now? Where are you to dig? The cure for this condition is to answer his call. His call is first to follow and secondly to go. So, now what? There's all of that, now what? I'll call the worship team forward now as I want to close this out. So here's the thing. Here's the condition. Sometimes we have this condition of our soul where we feel dry and distant and stuck and worn out and maybe meaningless even. We ask ourselves, is this all there is to life or what's next? Or I've achieved everything I've dreamed of, but I'm still empty. And the cause for this condition is fairly simple sometimes. It's just that this missional life can be hard. And the cure for this is simple as well. Keep at it. Just keep at it. 
focus. Do what is in front of you. Why? Because Jesus has called you. Because Jesus has a mission and a purpose for our lives. So I want you to try something. And I hope this is up there. It will be. Try this. Up here is going to be a list of spiritual disciplines. I think it's like 16 of them. Many of these uh, have been taught on by our pastors over the last several months. Look at that list. Is it up there? Okay. Look at that list. Pick something uncomfortable. Pick something that is maybe unclear to you. Learn about it and try it on. Secondly, I want you to just think about what is the work currently at hand? Where are you plowing? And how can you lean into that even more? Lastly, if you're just curious about this Jesus thing and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Christ, first, I'm glad you're here and I hope this has meant something to you. But if that's you, Let's face the facts and count the cost. But also, consider the satisfaction, the joy, and the peace that will come from following Jesus. Not to mention that the heavenly reward. Remember what we just read that Peter, James, and Paul told us. There's great purpose in your life. So if you're not, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, that's okay. Consider this. Consider the cost. Consider the satisfaction of Jesus and have a conversation. I just encourage you. Have a conversation with someone about the claims of Christianity.